Hi everyone, I'm Sam Callen. Welcome to this podcast. This podcast is an audio version of a monthly conference call that is done for National Governing Body Coach Educators and Developers here in the United States. And I've made this an audio version only because so many people consume uh, podcast information on the go on their daily commute or while exercising. So I want an audio version of this. If you want to see the video version, in the show notes there's a link to the YouTube page that has the original uh, monthly call. So with that, I'm going to go to uh, this month's call, and thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Sam Callen, your host for the podcast here for Coach Developers, uh, co-sponsored by the United States Center for Coaching Excellence. And uh, this interview is with Jessica Leahy, the author of The Gift of Failure. And uh, this, this is really a book that she wrote for parents and educators primarily. There is a section in there on sports and coaches. And we do talk a lot about uh, how coaches are um, teachers and how you can apply this idea of the growth mindset and, um, you know, not being as directive in your coaching or uh, we started out talking about overparenting, but then she you know likes to use the term directive uh, because it's a little less uh, maybe has less negative connotation to it uh, so here we talk about some of the trials and tribulations and struggles of implementing this new style of, of teaching or parenting or coaching and uh, I think a lot of the message she has are things that many of us know already um, I, I like the message that she has of you know, rather than jumping in and, you know, doing the immediate fix on what's going on to thinking long term on how do we get, uh, people, the, our youngsters to be more autonomous in this autonomy support idea. Uh, she elaborates on that and, um, talks about learning and progress over, uh, records and things. So it's a lot of message that most of us are probably very, very familiar with. And I really appreciate her perspective as a, a teacher of 20 years and looking at how we go about, uh, you know, creating kids who are more resilient and who can think on their own and, and act on their own. And, uh, so there's some good parenting advice in here as well. So again, I, um, an interview with Jessica Leahy. I really enjoy it. I'm hoping that you like it as well. So here we go with uh, my chat with uh, Jennifer, uh, Jessica. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Sam Callen with USA Fencing and also in conjunction with the United States Center for Coaching Excellence, uh, bringing you this interview with Jessica Leahy. Uh, Jessica is the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go of Their Children uh, So Their Children Can Succeed. Uh, Jessica is a, a teacher, writer, mom, also has a law degree thrown in there, and she writes <laughs> on education and parenting. We won't hold a law degree against you. And, um, <laughs> Thank you. Has a bachelor's in comparative lit, as it says, from uh, UMass, and her uh, JD is from the University of North Carolina. Um, that will make one of our listeners very happy who's a Tar Heel fan. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jessica, just introduce yourself to folks and tell a little bit about, about your background, then we'll kind of start talking about the book and your views on uh, why failure is good. Well, if it helps at all, my law degree is in, was in juvenile justice. I actually studied juvenile and education law because I thought I'd be working in juvenile court. Um, I had been interning there for ages. I had a mentor there. I'd been working with kids who had been sexually and physically abused. I loved that job, but uh, in the middle of law school, I was asked to start to do a teaching job in the summer, and, and that was it. I was completely sunk. I loved it so much. Um, that was, so I've been teaching for the past 20 years, um, middle school and high school. And the gift of failure really came out of my experiences teaching in public and private and hoity-toity independent and, and, you know, public schools where you get a little mix of everything. And, um, you know, I, I started to notice that, you know, my students were less excited about learning and really, really scared of making any mistakes. And, and that really... I know, obviously, from the research, you know, if anyone knows anything about Dan Pink or anyone knows anything about Edward Deasy, um, there are lots of factors there that really undermine students' motivation. But I was concerned also that it was undermining their ability to learn, and it turns out that that's true. It does, um, you know, lots of things we do to freak our kids out so that they feel like they can't make any mistakes really ends up 
um, rendering them less able to learn, which you know, obviously we don't mean to do that, but that's how it ends up. So I, I'm still teaching. I teach in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So while they're doing their rehab, I'm their teacher. They're writing an English teacher. And I'm writing my next book on preventing addiction in kids. So that's uh, about me in a, in a nutshell. Fantastic. So in your book, you say, you know, you came to this uh, view about failure uh, later in life. Uh, you didn't always see this failure as a gift. So <laughs> what changed? What was your, I mean, maybe you didn't have a eureka moment. You may have had several eureka moments. But what were some of the things that led you to go, aha, I need to change? Yeah, I, there was a, it was a string of moments, but there really was one big day um, that I got a, a, one of my eighth graders handed in a paper uh, where she talked about the fact that her inability to, her worry about being perfect was really leading to an inability to take any chances and to make any mistakes and anxiety and really freaking out. Um, and at the same time, she admitted that all of that had rendered her, um, she didn't like learning anymore. It really wasn't about the learning for her anymore. It was about, you know, the points and the scores and the grades. And I, I knew that. I knew her really well. I'd taught her for three years in three different subjects and um, knew her family, knew her parents and her brothers and sisters and all that kind of stuff. So the, the thing that really hit hard, though, is that very, you know, and I was feeling very judgmental over her parents. I'm like, oh, they've overparented her in a, into a state of helplessness and a state of, you know, anxiety. And then I went home that very same day, and um, this is actually in the book, and I realized that my own son, who was nine at the time, um, didn't know how to tie his own shoes. And it was like a huge slap in the face where I said, you know, I, I couldn't be judgmental of, of all of my students' parents because, you know, I was doing the exact same thing to my own kid. I had, I had out of, you know, caring, love, whatever, parented him into this state of helplessness. And um, it was just a moment where I realized I needed to figure this out from a research perspective. I've been a journalist for a long time, and um, so I know how to dig into the research and figure out what's going on, and, and that sort of led me on this journey toward this book. And uh, on your journey in the book, you talk about overparenting. How, how do you define mm -hmm. overparenting? For me, overparenting really has to do, it's in the literature on um, parenting styles, it's, it's referred to as directive, uh, directive parenting or controlling parenting. I tend to use the word directive parenting because it's easier for some parents to hear than controlling. Um, <laughs> but Directive parenting really just means that we're constantly telling our kids what to do next. Okay, here's the next step. Okay, now do this. Okay, now do that. And then sometimes stepping in and saying, oh, well, I'll just do it for you because, you know, it's faster slash easier slash I do it better. The problem is is that the research, um, and I, I'm pointing specifically at research by someone named Wendy Grolnick. Uh, she has a couple of fantastic books out about this and lots of wonky research studies that are great. Um, the problem is is that kids who are highly directed are much less able to deal with their own frustration when they, when they face things that are challenging. And the opposite of that is called autonomy supportive parenting, where the parent doesn't hand the kid the answers, but isn't directive, doesn't do it for them, but helps the kid make, come up with solutions on their own, helps their kid have autonomy. And in the, in the studies that Wendy Grolnick has done, kids of autonomy supportive parents are much, much more likely to complete frustrating tasks than their peers who have been highly directed. Kids who are highly directed are a lot more likely to give up. Kids who have been had autonomy supportive parents just sort of are more able to work through their frustration. They're more able to take a breath and come at it from another direction. And so if you think about why that's really important when it comes down to education or sports, you know, anything that requires us to have growth, the most important teaching tools I have as a teacher require me to push kids a little bit past their ability level or to just force them to or encourage them to use knowledge and manipulate it for new contexts. And that causes frustration because it's, hard. <laughs> but the only way we get better and smarter, if you've read any Carol Dweck, is to push ourselves a little bit to try these things. And if the kids who have been highly directed are less likely to be able to, to benefit from that, then 
kids who are highly directed are less able to learn and grow in school. So, you know, that that connection was something that I had never seen in the liter in, in the sort of popular media before and, and that's what I discuss extensively in Gift of Failure. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the target audience for this call are, are coach developers, coach educators, mm-hmm. and also coaches as well. Uh, and, yeah. you know, co- coaches are teachers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, rather than teaching you know, so. the Pythagorean theorem, we're teaching how to field ground balls or how to, you know, yeah. in, in the sport of fencing to, you know, pair your post and all the other fun stuff that we do in our different sports. Um, what the, the the challenge can be, I think, for coaches is that they probably because they were coached this way, they want to jump in, and when the kid messes up fielding that ground ball, they want to jump in and you know immediately tell them what to do. Right. What's a how does the autonomy support approach that? Let's say the kid is just not getting his glove all the way down on the ground, which yeah. is you know how we teach people to field ground balls. Um, I'm using that one because I figure most everybody's familiar enough with baseball. That's kind of a universal one, at least here in the U.S. So what could a coach do in those situations to, rather than just being that directive coach in this case and not parent? Yeah. What's funny is uh, the whole time you were saying that, I was thinking about my niece who's young. She started uh, wrestling when she was eight and loves it. And at first, um, you know, everyone kept talking about how great she was because she takes direction well. And at first, I think that's really, really important because, you know, there are certain um, competence hurdles you have to get over in order to just, you know, make it to the first step of towards success. Um, but towards, you know, the thing that I had so much respect for with her coach is that he stopped being directive fairly quickly and started asking her questions like, how do you think that could have gone differently? Um, wow. do, do you, you know, if you had that match to do over again, how do you think you could have avoided um, being pinned? Or there, or, or even you can even get more specific with really little kids. You could say things like, you know, there was a moment when that kid grabbed your thigh. What could you? And that was the turning point of the match. What could you have done differently in that moment? Or next time, if that happens, how can you avoid? being vulnerable in that moment. And it's the same thing that I tell parents all the time. You know, if we're trying to leave the house in the morning and your kid is going to forget everything, your job is not to say, sweetie, you forgot your backpack and your lunch and they're on the counter, go get them. Your job, the best way to help grow your kid's autonomy and to help them become more um, capable and competent is to say things like, oh, you know, before I leave the house, I sort of go through this mental checklist of all the things I need. I have my, let's see, I have my phone, I have my briefcase, I have my laptop, I have, now, how about you go through yours too? What do you need today? And you can direct, you you can be guiding, you can sort of help move them in the right direction, but giving them the answer, it's, I, I equate it a lot to those kids that ride in the car but don't actually know how to get anywhere. Um, they, you know, when they start driving, all of a sudden they realize, oh, my gosh, I've, dri- I've been driven to school 100 times, but I don't actually know how to get there. Yeah. Um, helping give kids the tools to be able to get there themselves is how we create competent kids. And coaches that are really good at that not only help kids learn, they also help kids know how to think, how to anticipate, how to problem solve when they're faced with novel situations rather than just look at the coach. Because the nice thing about watching my niece grow over time is in looking at videos of her, because my sister always sends me videos afterwards, in looking at videos of her, I notice she looks at her coach a lot less than she used to. She's starting mm-hmm. to trust herself that she's going to have the answers. She doesn't, and, and, you know, she looks at her coach during a wrestling match, she's toast. Um, being focused and in that moment, but having her own ability to problem solve is what's going to help her be a better wrestler, not her ability to look at her coach and read hand signals. That's amazing. Well, a couple of comments on there. One is that uh, yeah. it's super cool that your niece is wrestling. Um, I'm going oh to gosh, make sure that I, uh, I I send a link to this to Sally Roberts uh, of Wrestle, like a girl who's a who's a friend and, and sometimes joins us on the calls as well. Uh, she'll be very excited to hear that. And I know there were. Oh, she just she and it's hard, you know. She's mostly wrestling against boys still. Yeah. Um, but man, she's just it has it has really brought her out of her shell. It's fantastic. That's neat. That's neat. That's such a non-traditional sport. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The girls wrestling side of that. Um, along those lines, and, and you mentioned this in the book, 
Um, your own sort of troubles with adopting this new style. You find yourself relaxing <laughs> from time yeah. to time. A um, <laughs> little bit, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm very, I, I'm very sympathetic to that because um, after reading Carol Dweck's work and doing a lot with that, I really changed my approach to uh, child rearing. Mm -hmm. But every now and then, you know, relapse into old habits. Uh, so oh, she jokes in the book that she she jokes in the book that she says yeah. the wrong thing with her husband all the time. So yeah, of <laughs> course we relapse. That's we're human. Yeah, and so you know, coaches who may listen to this go, okay, I'm going to apply this. I'm going to go out, I'm going to you know, buy the gift of failure, and I'm going to mm -hmm. read it and I'm going to do this. What are some things they can do when they relapse? Because it, it's it's going to happen more frequently early on yeah. and after a few years. But what's what's the best practice for those folks when they I, yep, I relapsed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, my publisher was lovely about is they printed these little bookmarks that have these little takeaways, and it's sort of these takeaways for parents on how to start thinking as a more autonomy-supportive parent as opposed to a directive parent. And the very first thing we have to do is start um, thinking long-term, not short-term. Um, our players need to become better over the long-term, not just in this moment when they don't know how, when they're fielding, you know, they're trying to catch that ground ball and they're doing it wrong. What we want is not a kid who's going to catch that ground ball correctly in this moment. We want the kid that for the rest of their baseball career will know how to adapt and catch. So thinking long-term rather than short-term, and especially in parenting, because, you know, we're constantly in that emergency mode of, oh, my gosh, this homework assignment needs to be perfect, and, oh, my gosh, he forgot it, so I need to take it to school today, because if I don't take it to school today, he's going to get a zero today. Well, I would much rather have a kid who, in six months, knows how to remember that homework assignment on his own than a kid who, you know, manages to not get a zero today, and that's, that's a matter of stopping and rewiring our thinking, thinking, you know, stopping for a second when you reach in to load the dishwasher for the kid and say, wait a second, do I want my kid in six months to be able to do this himself or do I want it done exactly the way I want it done right now? Um, and that can be really hard, but, you know, I, I use the analogy a lot. Um, I travel a lot for work because I speak all over the world, uh, mostly all over the country. And when I take my kids with me, it's really tempting for me to walk up to that kiosk at the at the baggage claim or at the baggage terminal, whatever, and at the gate thing and do all the work myself because it'll be faster and I'm stressed out when I travel and I need to get to the gate and blah, blah, blah. But they're going to have to do that. So yep. they're going to have to be able to walk up to a kiosk and do that themselves. And they're not going to magically know how to do it when they're 18 or 22. So stopping in those moments and saying, okay, what's my long-term goal here for these kids that are running along behind me? Is it to have more competent kids or is it to, have a, is to, to get to the gate faster? So thinking long-term rather than short-term, always thinking about process and stressing process more than we stress product, um, especially with grades and things like that. You know, yes, your kid may come home with, you know, an F, um, although I make the joke that B minus is the new F, so I guess B minus <laughs> is the language I should be using here. Um, and we can freak out over that, and we can applaud the kid and call grandma and take pictures of the A, or we can have a conversation about what they did to get that grade. We could freak out and, and applaud them and, um, you know, take pictures with the trophy for winning the, the wrestling match, or we could have a great conversation about what went well, what they'll use next time, and what they will leave behind because it didn't work. That emphasis on process over product is not only important for sort of their growth, it's also really important for kids who are highly anxious. Kids who are highly anxious are overly focused on product and parents of those kids. And so anytime we can bring, bring the conversation back to process, we're going to go a long way. So long-term over short-term, process over product. Those are like the two biggies um, for sort of getting ourselves to a place where we're, we're starting to think in a more growth manner. Excellent. Well, you know what? You're, you, you've given me the perfect segue there. You mentioned growth, and we've <laughs> talked about Carol Dweck a couple of times. So right. maybe – the folks on this call, I'm really confident, uh, know Carol Dweck's work, but anybody who may mm -hmm. have just uh, stumbled upon this, give a quick synopsis of uh, Carol Dweck and her growth mindset uh, philosophy. 
The, the problem with quick synopsis is that's what's gotten us in trouble with growth mindset in the past. Oh, I mean, point. the way, well, you know, any, in journal, I'm a journalist, you know, and I say to my editor, you know, I'm going to need 2,000 words to talk about this complicated piece of education theory. And my editor says, great, you can have 500 words. Yeah. And it gets oversimplified. Um, you know, the oversimplification is, um, people seem to think is that we should always praise kids for their for their um, effort and never ever praise them for being smart, which is just stupid. And any coach knows that constantly praising effort without guidance is just a fool's journey. It's never going to work because praising effort when the kid is doing the wrong thing and, and headed in the wrong direction and not getting any sort of inkling of what they're doing wrong is, is just never going to work. And they will stop trusting us and it makes us terrible teachers. So Carol Dweck's work in, in a nutshell is um, – you know, I, I tend to uh, synthesize a whole bunch of her research into one big example. She gives kids a math quiz. Um, on that math quiz, she then gives their scores back. And for half the kids, she says, oh, you did such a great job. Um, yeah, she says, um, sorry, she says, you must have worked so hard. Here's your grade. You must have worked so hard. The other group, she says, here's your grade. You must be so smart. When she gives a slightly harder quiz, the kids who are praised for you must have worked so hard do a little bit better or the same on a harder quiz. The kids who are praised for being smart do the same or a little worse, which, you know, as a teacher, I find that interesting. But what I find most interesting is the follow-up research. Because then when she asks those kids, you know, oh, if you like that, I have these, these challenge questions. Who wants the challenge questions? The kids who are praised for being smart don't want the challenge questions because the fastest way for someone to figure out that you're not as smart as they think you are is to take the challenge problems and get some wrong. Whereas the kids who are praised for their for how hard they worked take the challenge problems. In fact, they refer to, you know, they talk about them as being kind of fun because they're harder. They have to work at those. Also interesting, but what I really love, and from a sports perspective, I think this is really important. When she asks those kids to write down really quickly their experience of taking these quizzes for other kids who are going to do it in the future and to write down their score, the kids who were praised for how hard they worked did exactly that. They wrote down their score and they wrote down the process of taking the quiz and what it was like for them. The kids who were praised for how hard they are, sorry, for how smart they are, wrote down the process of taking the quiz, but then almost 50% of them lied about their score and inflated their score artificially. The other interesting thing about that group is when she says to them at the end, if you'd like to take a look at some of the quizzes of kids who have taken this before you, the kids who are praised for how hard they worked look at the quizzes of the kids who did better than them because they want to learn from those quizzes. Hmm. The kids who are praised for how smart they are want to look at the quizzes of the kids who did poorly because they need to feel better about themselves. So when we see kids who cheat, I mean, honestly, James M. Lang, who wrote this book called Cheating Lessons, it's really a synthesis of Carol Dweck and the research on, on uh, academic dishonesty and cheating, set, puts it really bluntly. He says, if you want to create a classroom full of cheaters, just keep telling them how smart they are and emphasize this product over process. Um, so we, you know, we create cheaters, we create liars, we create kids who are not going to take challenge problems when we're constantly praising them for the end product and telling them how innately talented they are, how naturally talented they are. And from an education perspective, for me, it's a nightmare scenario because when you tell kids they're just naturally talented or born talented or born gifted at XYZ, when they hit uh, a point at which they start losing or failing, they're a lot less able to be able to deal with it in a constructive manner because they've, they've been taught that maybe covering that up is the best way to handle it because, oh my gosh, someone's going to find out I'm not as naturally talented as they've been telling I am, me I am for my whole life. So Carol Dweck, as it applies to sports, as it applies to school, the more we, the more we guide kids gently, not direct them, the more we tell them, we emphasize that the way we get better is through repeated practice and trying hard and trying things that are uncomfortable for us and pushing ourselves to the next level, the, the more kids are likely to, to improve and to grow and to believe in their ability to get better and less likely to cheat. So really, it's a win-win for everyone. That, so sorry, there's no, way to talk, there's no way to talk about Carol Dweck in a very, very abbreviated manner or we'll get it wrong. So that was the shortest I can do it. 
No, that that was fine, and I I I do think <laughs> that sometimes it, her work is misinterpreted as as kind of in, again in the sports thing. It's, oh well, everybody gets a ribbon, everybody gets praised, yeah. and and stuff. And it's like, well, no, again, it's the super it's more complicated than that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, like you said, the the poor writer who had to write this was only given 150 words to right. describe years of her research. Um, right. In a, well, in and it's show. why Carol Dweck. It's why Carol Dweck has had to go back and start writing articles about the misinterpretation. It's why um, Angela Duckworth has, you know, when her book Grit came out, she kind of. I was talking to her right before the book came out. She was sort of bracing herself for the fact that this is, you know, you come up with an idea and it becomes part of sort of the popular vernacular. It gets um, twisted around and oversimplified. And, and there's not a lot that the Carol Dwecks and Angela Duckworths and the people like I, you know, gift of failure gets misinterpreted all the time. And, you know, there's not much I can do about that except be out there talking about it all the time. And I'm going to come back and ask you a question about along those lines towards the end here. But um, mm-hmm. w- so you do include a chapter on on youth sports in in mm-hmm. your book, and that's uh, a part of what drew me to it. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. it it pushed me over the edge into into picking it up. And oh, good. <laughs> what, what, well, again, that's sort of what I you know it's it's why I get paid um, yeah. <laughs> my day job here. So. Uh, what do you see happening in youth sports? And then we'll kind of jump off uh, from that as well. It's been really interesting. My my involvement with sports um, until just recently was as a teacher. And for a long time, for a while there, I was a teacher at Roland Hall St. Mark's in Salt Lake City at the Romark Ski Academy. Um, I was the teacher for Keely Kelleher, who was on the U.S. ski team for 10 years, um, uh, freestyle skier and, and mountaineer Caroline Gleick. Um, so all a lot of the athletes that I profile in there, I know from a teaching perspective. And um, it was really interesting to become a sports parent late in my kid's development because I, I have one kid who, who became a runner in, in high school. And I really got to sort of personalize, make this very personal for me. And um, it's been very interesting to watch I thought I would never in a million years be one of those sports parents, and yet I wrote this piece about the fact that one day my son was um, in a cross-country race, and he got uh, tripped and spiked early in the race. And, you know, as a parent, if I had been there, I, I would have been, like, crying foul. This has got to restart. This is un- unsportsmanlike behavior. The magic thing that happened in that race um, was sort of – it was incredible to me. Um, my son's team saw what happened, and they rallied behind him, and they carried him to the front of the pack. He made a PR that day after falling at the beginning of the race. His team came together, rallied. I mean, it was like this magical thing that happened. He's like, I can't believe it. I fell, and but I PR'd because I was so determined I had to beat that kid who had had this unsportsmanlike behavior in front of me. And from a mom perspective, I would have been all over the officials being like, oh, my gosh. And yet that's the worst thing I could have done in that moment. I would have robbed my kid of that incredible experience with bonding with his team and learning what he's really capable of. Um, And never, and we're not a real huge sports family, so never in a million years did I think I would be in that position. But there I was. And, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, what I, I, I speak to coaches all over the country and what I hear a lot of is kids being robbed of that experience of figuring something out for themselves or, you know, the ability to learning how to talk to a coach in a constructive, self-advocating manner. Um, my kids have had bad coaches, too. And, and when I talk to kids who have coaches that, you know, don't notice um, when they're that when their athletes are really suffering and when their athletes are really on edge and when the parents are really on edge, um, you know, that it's hard, it's hard to balance, you know, all of these shared goals and your goals are obviously as a coach to, to create a winning team, but you also have to have these long-term perspectives on long-term development of kids. And I don't think anyone gets into coaching kids they only care about the sport. Uh, I really, I tend to be a little idealistic in that sense. I, I think it would be a nightmare to work with kids if you don't actually care about kids. Um, so I, my hope is always optimistic that coaches are in it for that. But I, you know, what I definitely hear 
especially from volunteer community coaches, is that they're done. They just they can't take it anymore. Um, coaches that have been volunteer coaches that have been doing it for a long time um, talk come up to me all the time and say, you know, I just this is going to be my last year. I can't. It's gotten too intense. This is a volunteer position. Um, there's no reason for me to do this anymore. And I, you know, I hear that from teachers. I hear it from coaches. It's it's a terrible situation because we need those people. We need them desperately. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. As, <laughs> as uh, those of us who work in sports world and understand that, um, you know, and, and the problem is for a lot of people is, and I run into this in people in my world in fencing is like, well, all you care is about winning medals at the Olympics. And and I'll tell them I've worked with. The highest level athletes I've worked with Olympic medalists as a as a physiologist in my old uh, life. Mm -hmm. I said, I've been there, done that. I'm really more mm -hmm. interested in every kid having a great experience and kind of one of the things that we are banding about as a term. You know, as many kids uh, as possible for as long as possible to have the best experience possible, and mm -hmm. um, and, and doing that. And we are, and most of our youth sport coaches out there are volunteers and. You get the one who's trying to look for their meal ticket to another level, but for the most part, they're doing it out of the love of the game. They want to, you know, have the great experience that they had. And, um, and but I think we also need to help them learn, you know, to how to work with kids in that. You know, an eight-year-old is not just a smaller sixteen-year-old that you can be serious yeah. with. Doing yeah, that. I think I think you know. Luckily, more and more people are talking about overspecialization. More and more yes. talk, people are talking about that stuff. I think um, it's really becoming um, part of our cultural discussion. Every once in a while, you know, you hear about the middle school kid who's committed to you know uh, college, <laughs> and you know, from from a middle school, um, you know, from a New England perspective, you know, I I quoted a. Um, uh, middle school administrator at a really high-level uh, private school in the Boston area who was talking to me about, you know, middle schoolers' commitment um, to colleges, even though you're not really allowed to, doing it anyway, and then getting into a situation where they're manipulating, you know, the system with hand-picking teachers because then, you know, Brown's not going to look at them if they have a C, so how do we get the kid teachers that won't give them Cs? You know, oh, all yeah. of this feeds itself into a really bad situation for kids. And, um, you know, at, once you've taught for 20 years, you know, what I have found over 20 years is that it's not the successes I had in the moment, um, you know, the number of kids that got a five on their AP language and composition exam that what I really care about. What has become most rewarding for me over the long term are the students of mine that have gone on to become teachers themselves, the students of mine who um, have gone on to not just you know, be high-level athletes, but, you know, for example, I mentioned Keely Kelleher. After 10 years on the U.S. ski team, she's gone on to found Keely Ski Camp for Girls, the first, you know, ski racing camp for girls. And to me, you know, I'm proud of everything she did on the U.S. ski team, but, oh, my gosh, I'm over the moon proud of her about the fact that she's decided to go on and coach and be a mentor to other girls. So I think any coach that's been in it for longer than a couple of years gets it that the real reward is in the long term, not in the moment. And and that's very true for teachers, and I think it's very true for anyone who works with kids. Yeah. So, again, you're speaking largely to coach educators, some coaches in here as well. What can those of us who put on coaching clinics and try to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or sorry if John Kessel's listening, he will beat me up for saying try. Those of us who are working <laughs> to change um, – Right. You know, the behaviors and the cultures. How do how can we go about instilling in that coach who is more directive in that way to to work in a different way? I mean, just yeah. as you are trying to do that with teachers, again, what can we do to, to help coaches learn this new paradigm? Well, I think it's the same thing that um that I tell administrators about teachers who are were overly worried about sort of the scores. Um, it's that conversation about bringing it all back to process over product. And if we're constantly talking about, you know, that's really nice that you're have that we're, you want to think constantly about the championship. But what I'd love to talk about is the learning. And the problem is, is like that tends to arrest 
parents and their parents especially in their tracks as if you know they're constantly wanting to talk about scores and you're constantly bringing it back to whether or not the kid is learning it's really difficult for a parent to argue that they don't care about the learning that really they want that what they care about most is the grade and if they do then you know sometimes they're a long-term project <laughs> instead of a short-term project but with a coach it's the same thing I mean over and over again when you talk about the fact that you know we really need to be focused on process progress our, our individual athletes progress as opposed to what their record what their RBI is today um, you know that sort of constant focus on growth and growth mindset and challenges and taking challenges but for the the reasons that it's it's going to be beneficial to long-term growth is, is really really important and part of long-term growth has to do with injury prevention as well I mean my son is devastated right now my 19 year old son because he really was fixated on this cross-country season coming up and he has an Achilles injury and that's not something that Ooh. that you can fix really quickly and so it's starting to feel better and he's antsy and he wants to put in the mileage but he also has been talking to a coach who's like you can't yet you know this is a long term if you want to run in two years you're going to have to chill now and that's uh you know being patient in that way is the best coaches understand patience and the best athletes understand patience and i think getting that having that conversation be about patients be in the context of long-term progress of the athlete um, and of learning as a coach of becoming better as a coach I think that's really an important conversation to have because you know I was talking to a parent recently whose daughter um, was anorexic during her high school running career and it wasn't until she went to college and the college was really starting to talk about, you know, 10 years from now, where do you want to be, um, that the, the conversation came up about the fact that she was underweight. And, you know, the parents were like, we've been saying this over and over that we were worried, but the coach was not really interested in talking about things that were going to make her slower. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, from a weight perspective, the coach saw you know, being thinner as being good. I was talking to, actually, I talked yeah. to a, a swimmer, an Olympic swimmer, about the exact same thing recently. Her coach got her so thin that she couldn't swim fast anymore, and she just never recovered. So having those conversations about long-term growth, long-term projects, long-term goals, that stuff is just so important. We can't overlook that. Yeah, and, and it certainly is a... Uh, a Something that's pushed under is the the eating disorder in, in the disordered mm -hmm. eating aspect. Um, so w what we're really talking about here, in some ways, is really change. And how? What recommendations do you give folks? Let's say somebody has they've listened to this, you know, read your book, and they go, "Okay, I'm gonna go out tomorrow, and I am going to do this." What recommendations do you have for them on implementing this change from a being very directive? To a little more process oriented and a little mm -hmm. more hands off maybe is probably yeah. not the best terminology to use but I can't think of anything better um, as I say here well it's funny you say that because we were talking about misinterpretation of ideas and a lot of people are like oh gift to failure you just want kids to fail all the time or you're one of the you know they see it as sort of that um, you know abandonment you know where you walk away and you're like yeah good luck with that you know, a very laissez-faire successful right and that's yeah. not at all what I'm talking about I'm talking about autonomy directive and the way you are autonomy directive is in every moment that you're really just itching to put your hands in there and fix the problem or itching to put your hands in there and just tell the kid what to do um, you have to stop for a moment and say, is this a learning opportunity? Because every single t time we step in and just give the next direction, that takes away an opportunity to ask the kid what they think the next step should be or what do they think they could do better next time or what do they think would have been a better solution to the problem. And those learning opportunities, it's not like we have a, a limit. It's, they're not limitless. We don't have an infinite number of learning opportunities. And that's how I ended up with a nine-year-old who couldn't tie his shoes because I just figured, I don't know, he'd figure it out someday. I don't and, – and, I just, you know, that avoidance of ever getting the kid to think critically um, comes down to impatience, comes down to rushing constantly and having these overscheduled, you know, lives. And the major problem, especially with student athletes and, and kids who are overscheduled, um, is that 
when we're telling kids constantly how to solve the problem and we're telling them um, we're directing all of their efforts, we, give, we take away their opportunity to build this thing called self-directed executive function. It's part of that frontal lobe process mm-hmm. that happens later on in their development um, because that's the last part of our brain to develop. Self-directed executive function is, oh, I have that goal out there, let's say, to build a treehouse. But there's 17 different things I have to do, probably 70 different things I have to do before I can start building that treehouse. And knowing how to prioritize and knowing how to manage all of those smaller goals to get to the larger goal, that's self-directed executive function. So when we tell kids the plays and we tell them how to you know, how to do everything um, from, you know, packing their athletic bag or doing it for them. We take away all of those intermediate goals and expect them to still achieve their long-term goals. And that's just not how long-term achievement works. They have to know how to prioritize over a long period of time, prioritize resources, prioritize time, prioritize sleep versus practice, prioritize, you know, all of the their homework versus their sports, that all of these things have to be juggled in life. And if we're constantly just telling them how to do it, we take away the opportunity for them to build that themselves. And, you know, when you say, what's the first thing we do? I, I hate to say it, I'm being repetitive, but stop and think, am I focusing too much on the short term and not mm-hmm. giving them a long-term opportunity to grow. Stop focusing on this emergency right here. Where do I want my kid to be in six months, six years, 10 years, 20 years, and giving them the opportunity to become the kind of person who can get there themselves? That's over and over again. I have to stop myself five times a day. Um, (laughs) Yesterday, I was out doing something with my son in the woods with a saw and an axe and a hatchet. And I wanted to do it because I know how to do it. I'm good at it. I know how to split wood. And he isn't. But the only way he's going to become more competent and not cut his toes off is by practice and doing it himself. Mm-hmm. And I can tell him how to do it. I can show him and then, you know, do a few and then show him a few and then have him do them. But if I'm constantly doing it for him, he's, he's never going to get good at it on his own. So it's, it's a constant struggle. I think a lot of the examples you give in that moment of jumping in, you've given lots of examples of asking them very open-ended questions um, to get them thinking about it um, as well. Um, Well, one of my recent frustrations is uh, my my son, who is 13, um, we were traveling together, and we were leaving, and it's like, okay, you know, pack your suitcase and and do this, and I'm watching him um, pack his suitcase and (laughs) – you know, it, your stereotypical 13-year-old boy here is yeah. just grabbing everything and putting in, including some dirty stuff in there and stuff. And it's like <clears throat> – and I, I walked out of the room yeah. because my instinct yeah. was to, Jack, that's not how you pack yep. a suitcase. And yep. I also realized – I was like, well, what difference does it make? Uh, you know, in the scheme of things, he had everything in there that he needed. Right. But – Still, you know, it's like, okay, oh, and then, we, you know, his, we, Yeah, we left for a trip recently, and I picked up my son's suitcase, and it weighed like 20 ounces. And I said, <laughs> are, are, <laughs> I, but, you know, at that point, you have a decision to make. You can say, how many days are we going for? And have them look at yeah. the calendar. I mean, from a very small age, you can say, okay, we're going for X number of days. How many pairs of socks are you going to need? And having these constant conversations where they're doing the problem solving, you're not doing the problem solving, they're doing the strategizing, you're not doing the strategizing, these are all opportunities. So, you know, you can, you can choose to just let them walk, you know, just, just walk away and let them wear the same underwear for seven days in a row. Or, you know, if, if that makes you, if that gives you this, you know, skeeves you out, you can, you know, guide them a little bit. But being directive is never going to help them. Yes, that my, my little my little bit of OCD was coming through too, and especially looking at his sister who's fifteen over here, who's rolling everything up nice and neat and packing yep. everything away. I'm yep. going, just look at how yep. she does it. So anyway, yep. I um, yeah, I bit the bullet, left the room, and just we, we're fine. He has everything he needs. Well, what's, what's really interesting is kids often learn really well from their siblings, and so there's obvi- there's also an amazing opportunity for your daughter to help your son and, you know, to help him problem solve if that's something that they're interested in. 
Yeah, the problem is my daughter's very bossy. Um, so uh, yeah, and uh, doesn't do that in a very. Uh, she doesn't. God, she's going to kill me if she realizes I'm telling the world this. But she can be very bossy, and 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 she doesn't come across as I'm trying to help you. It comes across as being right. bossy. So um, and I'm very actually, familiar with she, that. Yep. It's funny because she every now and then will recognize this in herself and go. I was probably that probably came across harsh. I'm like, yeah, it did. Sweetie. Yeah, and yeah. Stuff. But yeah. you're recognizing that it did. That's the that's the best part of this whole thing. And um, so she's getting better. She's getting better about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to I wrap up with a couple things here, and I, I want you to as best you can to kind of summarize. You know, you talk about uh, failure as a gift. Kind of mm-hmm. just you know, in a nutshell, what makes Failure, what, what is this gift that failure gives us? What does it allow us to do and our kids to do? Well, for kids, it gives them the opportunity to realize that they can be more competent than they think they are. And that, you know, I talk a lot about competence as opposed to confidence because confidence with an F is really about feeling optimistic, um, you know, relying on someone else's opinion of you to carry mm-hmm. you through, whereas competence is – um, confidence based on actual experience, doing something, um, trying it, screwing it up, figuring out how to do it differently. Um, there's, I, I got to consult. Uh, I wrote the, the educational curriculum for this school, this uh, Amazon Kids show for uh, for little kids called the Stinky and Dirty Show. And in that show, a dump truck and a digger, stinky and dirty, have to figure out how to do complete a task, and they have sort of preschool mindsets, and so. Of course, they're going to come up with ridiculous, ridiculous ways to solve that problem early on, but each time they try something and it doesn't work, they figure out which things worked, which things didn't work. They discard what didn't work and keep what does work and move forward with that. And that failure that they experience is really valuable because it not only gives them the opportunity to learn from their mistakes, but it gives them the opportunity to be empathetic, to support each other, to feel competent, to feel like they can actually rebound from their mistakes and that they're not a complete failure just because they can't walk, you know, walk into a, a room and solve a problem first time. I mean, I, I'm sure you hear from parents all the time who say, you know, they say, I took my daughter to her first gymnastics lessons, and she couldn't do a back handspring. And she's like, I'm never going to be able to do it. Forget it. I'm never going back. That ability to, um, to say, well, of course I can't do it yet. This is a, a yet is a wonderful word that teachers yes. have really adopted. Of course you can't do that yet. It was the first time you tried. So that yet um, mindset, that thinking about, okay, well, I didn't do it right this time. I didn't do it right yet, I haven't learned yet how to do this well, that's all a byproduct of failure because I don't want kids to fail. I hate seeing my students fail. I hate seeing my own kids fail. But what I do love is watching them adapt in a positive way from failure. There's a book by Tim Harford called Adapt, and it's about business. But it's about figuring out what works and bringing that forward with us and leaving behind what didn't work and being mature enough to say um, to not blame your failures on someone else, not pretend like it didn't happen, but say, oh, look, I screwed that up. What do I do now? And that's what I want. That's the gift that failure gives us is the ability to realize that we're stronger than we thought we were, that we're more resourceful than we thought we were, that we can take feedback in a constructive way and not curl up in a ball and think that we're just total failures because we couldn't do something right the first time. And the analogy I tell my students all the time is that the first um, draft of Gift of Failure was a disaster, a real serious disaster. And I had to sit in my editor's office for two hours and hear an unbelievable amount of negative feedback. I wrote it all down. I had to hear it. I had to actually internalize it and use it and become a better writer in order to create the end product, which, you know, was a book that ended up on the New York Times bestseller list and is a way better book than I ever could have written before hearing that feedback. That's the gift that that huge monumental, horrible failure um, did for me. And, you know, I'm more proud of the fact that I created a great book out of a bad book than I am that I just wrote the book in the first place. 
and, and and it's the end product is excellent. So oh, really you. enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. So this is um okay. So this is bonus parenting uh, part of this uh, interview here, <laughs> and also this is I, I'll admit this is a question that I'm struggling with is um my my son and I, I've got a couple of friends who have kids who are in very similar situations. Uh, don't like taking that risk. They don't like getting outside their comfort zone. And yep. I, I've looked and tried to figure this out. What has his what has his mom and I done that has kept him from being a risk taker? And I mean, it, it's you know, it, it's not only sort of physical stuff. Like mm-hmm. he's not big into you know roller coasters or rides where you have drop mm-hmm. and stuff and I can kind of get that a little bit um, but in other areas too he doesn't want to reach out how do we overcome that um, you know fear I, and I think it's because he he has that fear of failure because I don't want to try mm-hmm. anything new because I could fail um, so I need some personal parenting tips here is what I'm asking for essentially well, there's some good news I can share with you. As I'm, my, new, my next book is on preventing addiction in kids, I can tell you right now that, that uh, kids, one of the uh, risk factors for addiction over the long term are kids who need a lot of stimulus and love things like, I mean, I happen to love roller coasters, but love that kind of, you know, constant adrenaline rush. And so the fact that your kid is not a huge fan of that adrenaline rush can actually be a good indicator in terms of his long-term likelihood of becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol. So I'll give you okay. that as a little... I feel better. You've made me feel a little better feel already. Better about that. Thank Good. you. Um, but um, the, the interesting thing is, you know, I, I'm a fairly brave person. I, I love to go out there and try stuff that I'm... I'm bad at and become good at it. I have one, I have a kid that just really does not, that um, didn't want to learn how to ride a bike, didn't want to learn, doesn't want to go into stores to, and talk to people and yes. risk looking stupid. Um, so for him, you know, there's it's a long-term process of confidence and competence building and um, starting small with starting with really low stakes things. Um, I tell a story. I told the story on Vermont Public Radio about the fact that um, there's a chocolate shop in uh, Hanover that in Hanover, New Hampshire, that's not there anymore. That um, uh, you know, it has a little pull-through in the front, and he, my son would love to go to the chocolate shop, of course. And so I started going there and going to the pull-through in live parking and handing him a five-dollar bill and saying, "Okay, go." And he would look at me like I'd asked him to do something horrible and and he would refuse it and he'd say no and of course I don't care if he goes into the chocolate shop or not and so I'd say okay fine and we drive away for about a year that's what happened um, I would start to pull in and I would go to hand him the money and he'd say nope I'm not going in by myself and I'd say fine and finally after about a year maybe a year and a half um, he took that five dollar bill and he went in and he told the woman behind the counter what he wanted and she was lovely to him and he that was a huge first step for him in terms of being able to talk to people in stores and it was a low stakes you know low pressure there was you know the only thing giving pressuring him to do it was his need for some chocolate (laughs) so i didn't care i didn't think less of him because he didn't do it it just you know i had a long-term goal in mind and um, you know, going into stores and asking for things has become something that's much easier for him. And the nice PS on that story is the woman who owned the chocolate shop told me actually that the person who um, ran the chocolate shop where she was growing up was really mean and the kids were really scared to go in there. Oh. And so she wanted to open a chocolate shop. Like one of her goals was to open a shop where kids would feel comfortable coming in by themselves. And so she cried when I told her that we were going to miss the shop, not just because, you know, we missed the chocolate shop, but because it had been an incredibly important part of my child's development as a human being and as a competent person. Um, So pick those small, you know, low stakes moments to give your kids the chance to self-advocate. Even if that, if it's saying, I don't want to do that, it makes me feel sick to my stomach, like a roller coaster, that's them self-advocating. And that's really important. And maybe they're just not a roller coaster. My husband hates them. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. yeah helping less... them feel brave when it's low stakes is really an important thing. And praising them not for the effort, but praising them very specifically for, you know what, I saw that 
that was really hard for you or I saw that that was really frustrating for you and I am so proud of you for sticking with it and finishing that task or going into that store or asking that adult for something. Um, That's a really important way to support them. And and that chocolate is a great motivator. So, um, <laughs> well, and in general, extrinsic motivators are terrible motivators. You know, trophies and true. grades and scores and paying for grades. That's those are really terrible for motivation. But, um, but sometimes you know, there really the reward for him was not just the chocolate. It was the fact that he did it himself. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah. I agree. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to put us in Q and A mode here real quick um, okay. while I ask this last. And so, if anybody, uh, I think, uh, I think everybody on here is still on the um, um, on the internet. It's logged in. So, uh, can I get to your question in just a second? But let me let me wrap up with this one: is what what is it that people get wrong about your book and your idea? Oh, sorry. Um, that it's laissez-faire parenting. That you know, I my kid wants to build a treehouse, and I hand him a hammer and a box of nails and some lumber, and say, "Go at it. Good luck. Don't get hurt." That's not at all, you know, what this is about. Autonomy supportive parenting is about talking through the process, talking through the goals, being there. Um, you know, even in experiments um, where uh, parents are classified as autonomy supportive in order to look at how kids deal with frustration, the parents are present. They haven't left. They're emotionally supportive. Um, they're there if the kid really gets stuck, and then the parents can help redirect. But And it's the same with, with coaches, obviously. Coaches that are autonomy supportive support the kid's ability to make decisions for themselves and figure things out on their own, but they don't walk away and say, yeah, good luck. Um, that's the mis- big miscomprehension, I think, uh, um, misunderstanding about gift of failure. I think parents sort of think I throw kids to the wolves and say good luck, but that's absolutely not uh, what gift of failure is about. It's about being supportive in the process as opposed to emphasizing the, the end product. Fantastic. Okay, uh, Ken? I can I think that you're Hey Ken, I think you're on the line. Okay, I thought Ken was in the queue there, but I'm not hearing him. I'm not hearing <laughs> either. Can you hear me now? Oh, there we go. Yes. Uh, hey, thank you. Along the lines of that same question, what pushback have you got when you're working with sports organizations or teams or coach groups or anything along those lines? Yeah, so, and I hate to classify, I hate to, you know, point at one area of the country, but for I, I speak a lot in Texas. <laughs> I speak a lot in, in the <laughs> Dallas area, in the Austin area, and um there are two main things I talk about with uh, teachers. When administrators ask me, for example, um, how they can make um, really change school climate to be more about process and less about product, I tell them that every time I go to a school, the very first thing I do is walk through the main front door that a new kid would be walking through when they come into the school. And I look around as if I were that kid, and I think, do I feel like I belong here? And schools that overemphasize and, you know, a lot of school building plans tend to put the trophy case, for example, right in front of the front door. And so, you know, if a kid is not a sports kid, um, they tend to not feel included. But, of course, most schools are very, very proud of all those trophies, as they should be, and want to display them, you know, right out front. So I get called to the mat, so to speak, uh, to use a sports analogy, uh, for, you know, for criti- I'm not criticizing the the value of winning. I think the value of winning is an incredible, incredibly important thing. It can be an incredible motivator and an incredible experience for kids. But when we emphasize the end product or the trophy or the whatever over the process of becoming and getting better, um, we tend to alienate a lot of kids. Um, the other thing in the book, I talk about um, one coach's experience in talking in a, in a sort of a big um, informal survey of the kids he was working with, he asked a whole bunch of serious athletes about their 
best and worst experiences in youth sports. And when he asks them what their favorite thing about youth sports was um, and their least favorite thing about youth sports, they say they told him that their least favorite thing about youth sports was the ride home with their parents. <laughs> and the, so that, you know, all, of this, all the criticism they have to go through on the way home. And that their favorite thing about youth sports was when their grandparents came to watch them play. And so when parents ask me, how can I be a better sports parent, I always say, think more like a grandparent and less like a parent. Um, and then the pushback I get from that is, well, the coach isn't doing his job, and I feel like I need to advocate for my kids' play time, playing time, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, in the end, I'm always going to say, let the coach be the coach and you be the parent and, and try to think more like a grandparent. And, you know, in places where sports are really serious business, um, a lot of parents who feel like they know better say, well, there, there just isn't time for that. In, in order for my kid to be the best athlete they can be, I need to also be coach. And I get that. Um, you know, Michaela Schifrin is from my town and her mom is her coach and I know Michaela and I know her mom and I know how her mom handles Michaela um, so it can work it's just as a whole when we talk about a parent's role versus a coach's role I think those two things need to be separated um, and you know the pushback I get from that can be really loud <laughs> and, and I get that I understand that parents think, especially sports parents, feel the stakes are really, really high. And if the coach isn't doing their job, then they become de facto coach. And I think that's a huge mistake. But that's, you know, that's coming from the perspective of someone who's interested in the long-term growth of, you know, children and their mental health and not necessarily their RBI. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm part of a group that's a working group looking at parent engagement on you know, how do we reduce these bad behaviors that, you know, show up on YouTube? And, pardon me, um, allergies are really kicking my butt here in Colorado. Oh, no worries. Uh, yeah, and I, I like this idea of they love it when the grandparents come. So maybe our maybe our thing should be be more like a grandparent with your yeah. kids at sporting events. That's a fascinating – I'd never heard that part of it before. I've heard the kids dreading to drive home because they get, you know, to yeah. – it's a debrief like a Navy SEALs would do after a, you know, after, you know, a combat mission, versus, which actually are probably less intense than what parents are giving kids. If you listen to my interview with Dan Coyle, he talks about that a little bit. Um, but uh, that's, that's interesting with the grandparent. I really like that idea. And that, that well, and grandparents, grandparents who come to my, to my talks, that's their favorite part. Because, yeah. you know, essentially what it means is, is that, you know, what kids want us for is, that support of just loving to watch them play. That's actually one of my very, if you don't know about this, there's a sports, um, a sports parenting website called I Love to Watch You Play. Yes. And it was started by Alex Flanagan. And it is one of my favorite websites for parents because it really gets at that being more like a grandparent and less than a parent. It doesn't mean that you don't care about skills. It doesn't mean that you don't help your kid become a better athlete. But it does mean that, our primary focus as a parent is to be supportive of kids in sports and not necessarily be their coach. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I, probably a lot of people listening to this audience will be, you know, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah, the challenge yeah. is getting that message out to the people. And w one of the things we talk about often, I, I used to be a trainer for the Positive Coaching Alliance, and I would do parent uh -huh seminars for them. Love and the Positive Coaching Alliance. I love them. Yes. And uh, one of the things that was funny when my, one of the first ones I ever did was the, one of, one of the parents said, you know, that was really great, but the people who really need to hear this aren't here. And, I, you know, realize you're right. I am preaching to the choir. The people who come to this right. stuff, and, and it was great that we were reinforcing that they are doing the right thing and they behave uh -huh. they want to, yeah. but yeah, the, yeah. Um, unfortunately the, uh, you know, belligerent parent who's yelling at the you know, referees to restart the cross-country match because their kid got spiked um, is not showing up at those things. And so how do we get our message out to them is, is one of the challenges that we're trying to figure out how to overcome. So, yeah, it's a tough one. It's because, yeah. you know, uh, people talk about this all the time. You know, when I'm out speaking at schools, when I go to schools, I'll speak to the kids during the day and then teachers in the afternoon and then parents in the evening. And, you know, it's not necessarily the parents who need to hear what I have to say that show up in the evening. Um, they sometimes do. 
Yeah. But generally speaking, I'm preaching to the choir. So. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, uh, Jessica, we've been at this for about an hour here, and um, I, you know, want you to let you get back to your house and not be. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm picturing you sitting on the side of the road talking on your cell phone. Is how I'm picturing this. Uh, no, that's no. I'm in a friend's driveway who lives at the top of a hill, <laughs> and I can. I'm looking out over the Dartmouth Ski Way. Um, uh, where, where everyone in the ski area, everyone skis in this area, but it's the only we don't have a ton of reception in New Hampshire, so I am actually sitting in my car at the end of someone's driveway. <laughs> well, I well I appreciate you taking that extra effort uh, uh, to get on the call and to share your uh, thoughts. And and I again, thanks for one, thanks for writing the book. Um, two, thanks for taking some time here to talk about it oh, and absolutely. its relation to sports. Yeah, it's so, been, you know it's been amazing to me the reception the book has gotten with coaches and pastors and all these people who work with kids. Um, you know I wrote this book for teachers really and parents, but um, coaches and pastors and volunteers and all those people who work with kids. This is you know understanding how to best help them learn. You know as a teacher I couldn't hope for anything more. So I'm so grateful that you read. Yep. Well, again, uh, thanks. And with that, I want to thank everybody who joined us on the call. And uh, hopefully uh, you guys will join us again in September. And Jessica, thanks. And uh, and good luck with all your house and moving and everything else uh, that's <laughs> going you. on in your life right now. And uh, so thanks. And uh, with that, uh, everybody, we will catch you on our next podcast. Thanks. Hey, and once again, thanks for joining us on this audio podcast. I want to uh, put a shout out to Lee Rosevear, who provided the music for the uh, intro as well as for this credit roll. So thank you, and good luck in your coaching.